Let me start out again by thanking you for the invitation to come and to be a part of your special day, for the warm welcome that you've given me. I, I know I know several folks in here. If I start naming the names of folks I know, I'll get in trouble. But uh, Brother McKee used to live on my street. Uh, and I apologize for all the gunfire from my end of the... We lived out in the county, lived in this little cul-de-sac. I had woods behind the house and... Uh, there was occasionally some gunfire, and I apologize because he was a very patient and tolerant neighbor with some of the shenanigans that went on in that neighborhood. And I know several other folks here, and thank you guys for letting me be your guest. If you want to go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 12, we'll spend a little bit of time there this morning. In an assembly on a Fortifying the Family Day, the temptation is to talk about marriages but the folks who aren't married or the, the young people here might not walk away from that with, with much to, to use. And so normally I like to try to do something that is a little more eclectic, a little more broad-based, and wanted to spend some time and, and tweak your theme a little bit and talk about fortifying the church family. What is your relationship to this body? Paul, when he talks about the church, never describes it as an organization. Paul always describes it as an organism. And one of the, the best places to go for Paul's philosophy is, is looking at his instructions to the, the church at Corinth. Now, the church at Corinth was a systems theology nightmare uh, for anybody who teaches systems because of the diverse population and the differences in those folks. The city of Corinth had 250,000 free people in it. You had 250,000 people who kind of came and went and did their thing. And there were 400,000 slaves in the city of Corinth. Now you've got 250,000 free people, 400,000 slaves. The gospel comes to town and people are converted. And then you find yourself on a Sunday morning with the owned and the owners worshiping together and having equality in Christ. Now go forward just a little bit. Extrapolate that out. Ten years down the road... You've got a guy who's a slave. And being a slave was almost like an occupation in, in the early first century. So he could be married. He could have children. He could raise faithful children in the church. And ten years down the road, you could have a slave in the church who's qualified to be an elder. And so now you've got an elder who's a slave. And you're supposed to submit. You've got free people and you've got slave people. And they go to church together in Corinth. Then you've got... People from a Jewish background. People who are raised on the Levitical system. Just the food laws in and of themselves, they were restricted by things they couldn't eat. Now, when a, when a practicing Jew looks at things that are, that are unclean, he, he doesn't do like we do when we've got a restriction on our diet. I, I'm on a quasi-restricted diet. But the things that I'm not allowed to eat, I, I wished I could eat. I don't look at a Krispy Kreme donut and go, oh man, that's nasty. I look at a Krispy Kreme donut and I imagine putting some butter on it <laughs> and putting it in the microwave, getting it warm and then drizzling some honey on top of it and then putting a Wendy's Frosty in that little hole and eating it with a fork. That's what I'm talking about, okay? That, but a Jewish person saw something they considered to be unclean and they, it was not only unclean to, to make them ceremonially unacceptable to God, it was considered roadkill. Now... For all practical purposes, what they were not allowed to eat was anything that was a predator or a scavenger. 
You make the distinction from that with that the land animals had to have a split or a cloven hoof and they chewed the cud. Mostly ungulates that they could eat. Uh, they couldn't eat a pig. They couldn't eat anything that, that was a scavenger. That's why they couldn't eat the squirrels or the rodents or, or things like that. In the water, the same deal with the exception of that a lot of the animals that they could eat in the water were predators, but they had to have fins and scales and most of the things that they could eat that had fins and scales consumed their prey whole. They did not tear or rend the flesh. But anything that was a scavenger, a catfish, a, a shellfish, a lobster, a crab, those kind of things were out of bounds. The leaf eaters, they couldn't eat the crickets unless it had a knee joint above the back. So a grasshopper or a locust or those kind of things. And, and, and they weren't allowed to eat those things. And, and when they saw those things, they were appalled by them. When they saw those things, they were offended by them. Uh, made mention that I, I served some as a, a, a chaplain with HPD SWAT. Now, I'm not an operator. I'm not a shooter. But I've been in, involved with those guys a long, long time. Our tactical medic who volunteers with us is, is a Jewish person. Uh, his name is Rich Colvin. And uh, he has a, a lake on his property that he allows us to fish in. And I asked him one day, I said, Rich, do you have any catfish in your lake? And he looked like I had slapped him. He backed he, No, I don't have catfish in my lake. I only have bass because he considers them to be unclean. I made the team uh, some, some T-shirts. And one of my favorite T-shirt designs uh, years ago, I did a drawing of my dad's fist. And I got a guy rappelling off of it, and it, it says, God is my rock. And it's uh, Psalm 144.1 is the scripture we use on it. And I asked Rich, I said, you know, I realize that you're not Christian, and this kind of has a, a you know, Christian theme to it. Would you be offended by one of these shirts that I've made for the team? And Rich said, I don't mind the verse you used, but I never used the name God in writing. He said, I'll put a dash where the O is because I, I don't personally use God's name in any context where it could be destroyed or defamed. And so he wouldn't wear one of those shirts. These people in Corinth were much more stricter than my friend Rich. And when they saw something that was unclean, it was nasty. It was roadkill. It was appalling. The Gentiles that went to church with these folks didn't have those restrictions. Can you imagine potluck Sunday at Corinth? You got your Jewish table, your Gentile table, and never the twain shall meet, you know. And in fact, you probably had them eating because I couldn't watch you eat what you're going to eat if I'm a Jew and you're a Gentile. God told Moses, when you build an altar to me, you do not approach that altar with steps. You approach it with a ramp, lest the nakedness of the priest become uncovered. Probably some modesty issues involved in that. Probably just some respect issues. If, if a priest is walking up to a, a, an altar and he trips or something happens and you see the undergarments and you were to laugh or to mock, the wrath of God could break out against you. But the Jewish people took that as a very serious injunction about modesty. And their women were modest from head to toe, wearing covers and veils. Their men were modest. Uh, you know, it was very inappropriate for a Jewish man to run because he had to gather up his robes in order to run. So when you read about the prodigal son's father running to meet him, boy, he's breaking protocol. When you read about the guy that runs up to meet Jesus, he's breaking protocol. Because they were overtly modest people. Gentiles didn't have those issues. You read about Corinth being placed on that isthmus and the Isthmian Games, the precursor to the modern Olympics, took place there. Those athletes that ran those races, those athletes that participated in discus and shot, those athletes that were wrestlers or boxers, 
Our word gym comes from a Greek word gymnos, which means nude. These guys competed in all their athletic events in the nude. They were naked. You thought Under Armour made you uncomfortable. You'd given good money for a pair of Under Armour at the Isthmian Games because these folks were running around just in their birthday suits. Now, you know, a little tongue-in-cheek, but you get up on, on, on Sunday and say, now the youth group is going to play flag football on Saturday. No, the Jewish kids won't play on Saturday. We're going to play flag football next Monday. And remember, no shorts. The Jewish people go, got it. Gentiles go, no problem. And then they show up and it's in a mess. And you've got these people with these different views of modesty and these different views of food and these different views of of appropriateness and they're coming to church together. And Paul's going to talk to them about how you behave in the body. Now the overriding concept that Paul is going to use is the term I use called corporate individuality. Paul is going to talk to them about understanding that we're part of a large corporate group But we have individual functions and we have individual responsibilities. He'll never use the phrase, but that's the concept that he's going to use in 1 Corinthians 12. He's going to talk about corporate individuality. And that's kind of like an oxymoron, a jumbo shrimp, Tennessee football, things that don't go together very well. But he's going to do that. Don't hate. He's he's going to do that. and, And as he does this, he's going to explore two themes. When he first starts out, he's going to talk about different but same. And as we read this text, listen for different but same, different but same. Then he's going to switch from different but same, and he's going to talk about many and one, one and many. And then after he lays his foundation, he's going to give three absolutely ridiculous situations that should never take place in a body system. And from those three things that should never take place, we're going to find out some things that should always take place. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. There are diversities, differences in gifts, but the same Spirit. Listen for different and same. There are differences in ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to one for the profit of all. Now, he's going to delineate different things, but he's going to come back to the idea of same. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. Different but same. Different but same. You got these different gifts, it's the same spirit. No matter what your particular gift is, came from the same spirit. Now you're going to swap and reinforce different to same with many in one. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now let's just make sure we understand that. If the body is the church and the church is the body, there's one way to have membership, and that's baptism. When you talk to your friends and you talk to folks about the importance of baptism, it should be an open and closed subject. 
If you're going to be a member of the body of the church, there's one way to become a member of the body, there's one way to become a member of the church, and that's through baptism. And Paul says that. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether... And I don't use the word whether in my regular conversation. I like to use the, what I call the North Alabama translation of 1 Corinthians. That word whether can be translated as it don't matter. So we'll read it like that. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body and it don't matter if you're a Jew, a Greek, a slave, or a free. Paul's taken those four distinctions and said if you're baptized into that body, then your heritage or your culture... Your occupation and station life, those things do not matter. You're all part of the body. For by one spirit we're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we've all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Now what is our function as an individual member of that body? First ridiculous situation. Verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? First ridiculous situation can't take place in a body is you can't have a body member say, hey, I don't like my job and I quit. You ever had your foot go to sleep, sitting there curled up in a chair watching football on the phone ring, you try to stand up on that asleep foot? That's a mess, isn't it? You ever had your hands go to sleep because you're sleeping on them and try to touch? Turn the alarm clock off and you're beating that thing with that stump. Hey, when your hand and and your foot quits functioning, there's a problem. If you've had a a heart attack or a kidney stone or a pancreatic attack or one of your eyes blurred, hey, you know what happens when the body quits doing its job. When Paul says you can't have this take place in a body, what he's basically saying is whatever your job is, you've got to do it. So rather than look at this in the negative and say, we can't just look around and say, I don't like my job, I quit. What Paul is telling us as body members, we must accept our responsibility. You've got a job to do in this body, whatever it is. You need to be doing it. What's the most important part of your car? Okay, if you're a teenage girl, it's called the brake. It's the pedal on the left. Okay, use it and use it liberally, all right? We could debate the brakes, the the universal joint, the fuel injectors, the steering column. We, We could spend all day talking about why this part is important. But let's suppose you're driving down the Atlanta Highway, you get a pop up thunderstorm, and you don't have a $7 piece of rubber that does this. You'll park that car. Because the most important part of your car is the part that you need to be working and it's not. And the difference between this, this congregation reaching its tipping point and growing to where it is, is there's somebody here who's not doing their job. And the most important function that you have in this church is your job. And you can't say, well, I'm not an elder, I quit. Or they won't let me lead singing, I quit. Or they won't let me do that. No, 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 no. You've got to find out what your responsibility is and do it. So the first thing is, we must accept our responsibility. Number two, second ridiculous situation. Verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? And if the whole body were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each of them in the body, just as it pleased them. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed, there are many members... Yet one body. Second ridiculous situation is we can't all be the same. 
We can't be cookie cutters of each other. We can't be exact duplicates of one another. If you show me a group of people and we all look alike, act alike, sound alike, dress alike, that's called a cult. That's not a healthy place to be. The body can't be just one member. Now, you know, it it might be helpful if our teenagers were just one eye and you say, don't roll that eye at me, but that's the only function it would have. But you don't have a body that's made up of just one thing. It's got all these aspects around it. And the body has different members and different functions because God's given us different jobs. My wife is from Velvet Ridge, Arkansas, a little town north of Ball Knob, just south of Batesville, right outside Harding University. Uh, I'm from Oxford, Alabama. We moved to Huntsville, Alabama when I was 22 and she was 18 or 19, depending on how you count her birthday. And so we're at this large congregation. I moved there to be a youth minister, this big city. We've been living in Salem, Arkansas, population of 1,700 people. We get to Memorial Parkway Church of Christ, and we're there. And one Sunday morning, Brother Gary and Mary Chun invited us to their home to eat. And she said we were going to eat dinner. I thought, well, that's going to be a long day because I ate dinner after dark growing up. (laughs) But apparently they ate dinner at noon and there's a cultural difference. Gary was the vice president or one of the executive vice presidents for the old Chrysler Corporation there in Huntsville. That whole complex now has been bought by Remington. They're going to do a Remington manufacturing plant in Huntsville. But we get invited to go to his brother and sister Chun's house. He's this executive vice president of of Chrysler. We walk into their house and sister Chun announces we will be eating in the formal dining room. I'd never been in a formal dining room. In my house where we grew up in Oxford, Alabama, there was a room you ate in and occasionally you put TV trays out and ate where the TV was. I'd never been in a formal dining room. And we walked around this, and there was this huge table. And there was this elaborate spread. And there were all kind of stuff. There was, there was hardware on that table. I thought, are we going to fight or are we going to eat? There's enough equipment here. I could take over a small third world country. There were fat forks and thin forks and skinny forks and short forks and long forks and tablespoons and teaspoons. There were sharp knives and dull knives and serrated knives and butter knives. And I sat down. I was scared to death. Jackie leans over and says, you will not embarrass me here. I said, what am I going to do? She said, you eat what Miss Chun eats with what Miss Chun eats it with. I said, what if I don't like it? She said, refer back to rule number one. You will not embarrass me. So I start watching Sister Chun, and it's kind of pretty simple. You start on the outside, work your way in, and, and we survived it. Why in the world do you put all that stuff on a table? You ever eat soup with a fork? You ever tried to eat steak with a spoon? There's an old boy in Arkansas, they said, used to eat honey and peas. And they said, why do you put honey on your peas? He said, it doesn't taste very good, but it keeps them on the knife. Well, (laughs) those things on that table have a function. And you can't do with a fork what you do with a spoon. And you can't do with a spoon what you do with a knife. And God has arranged the members of the body just as He pleased. And you're not supposed to be like me, and I'm not supposed to be like you. God has set us on this table and given us functions. We're not supposed to be images of each other. We're supposed to be images of Christ, and that individual manifestation comes out in how we produce and how we serve. We spend so much time worrying about what we're not rather than celebrating what we are. In one of the 
climbing classes that I taught over the years. Uh, we built an indoor climbing gym for the city of Huntsville. And um, one of the after-school programs that we donated some time to, they sent a little kid to me, and, and uh, his name was Chris, and Chris only had one arm. Now, I don't know why they send one-armed children to climbing classes. But we arranged some things so he could work out some patterns and we rearranged some of the artificial rocks. Now what you do in a, a climbing class with children or with any amateur climbing is you do a thing called top roping. Top roping is where if you could get a rope over one of these rafters and attach it to your climber and then run the other end through a break. As that person climbs up, you take up the slack. So as they get higher, their rope actually gets shorter. It's called top roping. That way if somebody falls, you don't do a lead fall. You don't have any rope slack. You just kind of swing in place. All amateur climbers do it. If you've ever been to a rock wall or a climbing gym, that's how it's done. Well, in this class, we teach the students to safety each other. That word is called belaying, B-E-L-A-Y. It means to hold a rope safe. And, and we, we teach the students to belay. They belay each other. And then on the fourth class period, they have to belay one of their parents which makes for some very exciting times. You have seventh graders in charge of life and limb. And uh, you're there and, and get dad back on the ground. And you ask the little seventh grade student, why were you screaming at your dad? Well, he was up on the wall and, and I couldn't find, he couldn't find a foothold. And there was a foothold right there and I was afraid. I said, like, welcome to parenthood. You were in charge of your dad's safety for 15 seconds and lost your mind. He's been in charge of you since you took your first breath. So if he gets a little crazy when you play t-ball or learn to drive, chill out. You've experienced for 15 seconds what it is to be a parent. And so it's a big deal in those classes to learn to belay. So I'm standing in that gym one day, got ropes hanging everywhere, got students doing exercises, somebody's tugging on my harness. Mr. Lonnie, Mr. Lonnie, Mr. Lonnie. I turn around and it's this kid Chris. He goes, Mr. Lonnie, I need to learn to belay. I said, well, Chris, normally people use two hands to belay. And Chris said, well, normally I just have one. <laughs> oh boy he looked me dead in the eye a little 7th grade kid he said don't tell me what people with two hands can do tell me what I can do with the one hand I've got and outside of that book right there one of the two most significant things ever been said to me in my life don't tell me what people younger than you do what can you do where you're at don't tell me what people older than you can do. What can you do where you're at? Don't tell me what people healthier you can get. What can you do where you're at? Don't tell me what a church with, with 2,000 members can do. What can you do with these people? Don't tell me what a church with four trailways buses can do. What can you do with three 15-passenger vans? We're not supposed to look like everybody else. And oddly enough, in, in, in my world, I'm five foot four. You may not have noticed that. When I shoot a bow, my draw length on the bow is 26 and a half inches. The bow I hunt with is a PSE X-Force Super Short. It's 26 inches from wheel to wheel. The guy that I hunt with in, in uh, Kentucky calls it the Ken and Barbie bow. He's let me see that Ken and Barbie bow. That's a pretty unique little bow. It's not weird. It's not odd. It's not funny. It's customized. Because the only man in this building that can shoot it accurately is me. And my climbing harness is customized. And my tack vest is customized. And my rifle is customized. And the tools that I use for specific things are built so I can use them. And you're built so God can use you. And He may not have needed another fork 
He may have needed a spoon. He may have needed a butter knife or a serrated knife. But quit worrying about that I can't do that job and find out the job that is you can do. Because God has put the members in the body just as it pleased Him. And so stop worrying about what you're not. And start understanding what you are. And everything you can't do points you towards something that you can do. So number one, we accept our responsibility. Number two, we accept our limitations. And then number three, ridiculous situation that can't happen in the body. Verse 21, Now the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which we seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we seem to think are less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism, no division in the body, but that the body members should have the same care one for another. And if one body member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one body member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ, but members individually. Now that's the closest you'll get to using the term corporate individuality. So the first ridiculous situation is you can't say, I I don't like my job, I quit. Accept your responsibility. Second ridiculous situation is we can't all be the same body part, so we accept our limitations. And the third ridiculous situation that can't take place is a body part can't look at another body part and say, you're not like me, you're not needed. You can't look at a body part and say, you're dispensable. You can't look at a body part and say, you're not important. In fact, what that says is we accept our responsibility, we accept our limitations, and we accept others. And listen to this acceptance of others. The body members should have the same care one for another, that there should be no schism, no division, no differences in the body. Mark Sanborn in his corporate team building program says that if you're part of an individual group, if you're on a team, if you work for a company, if you're involved in an an organization, from that organization you should receive three things. Attention, belonging, and support. If you receive attention, belonging, and support, you will be an active, healthy member of that group and you'll be there on a long-term basis. Doug, you want to check the health of your congregation some Sunday morning? Stand up here and say, everybody get out a visitor's card. On that visitor's card, write down these three words, attention, belonging, and support. On a scale of one to ten, one being the worst, ten being the best, write down how much attention you get from this group. Do they know who I am? Do they know where I'm at? Do they know who my kids are? How much belonging do you get from this group? Do you feel like you're invested? Do you feel like you're active? Do you feel like you're needed? And how much support do you get from this group? Do they celebrate with me when I have a victory? Do they cry with me when I have a disaster? You add up who's here, add up your numbers, and you'll find out that you get an A, a B, or a C. You can check the pulse and the health of your congregation with those three functions, attention, belonging, and support. Now, in all fairness, two weeks later, everybody get out a visitor's card. Write down these three words, attention, belonging, and support. On a scale of one to ten, one being the worst and ten being the best, how much attention do you give other people? How much belonging do you provide for other people? How much support do you give other people? In my limited experience, people who don't feel like they get it don't give it either. 
Philip Jenkins at Mount Juliet Church of Christ in Nashville has just written a book called The Lunch Ladies. That's an odd book for a youth minister to write. But the, the, and, and I was privileged to get to review it and make some editorial contributions to it. But Philip's idea is that when you went to high school, the worst place in the world on the high school campus was the lunchroom. You could be humiliated and abused at the lunchroom. There was the, the food chain where cool people sat and where uncool people weren't allowed to sit. You had the band people and the jock people and these people. And he said the only people in the cafeteria who served everybody was the lunch ladies. And he created a small subgroup in his youth group called the Lunch Ladies. And they served everybody. He had ten kids who'd crawl over the theater seating in their youth room known as the dungeon before they got them out and got them in a better place. And they'd crawl over those seats to meet everybody in every class every time they assembled. What would happen if it became your mission to speak to everybody in your section? What happened if it became your mission to sit in a different section every Sunday and meet a different cluster of people? What would happen that if every time something happened in the life of one of our members, some of our members noticed it? Attention, belonging, and support. What he's talking about is the idea that, that our relationships with one another is interconnected. And so many times we take the behavior of people and because they're shy or they're awkward or they're standoffish. And we ignore them. I mentioned earlier and Doug mentioned in my introduction that I, I do some work as a, as a chaplain. And again, I'm not a cop. I'm not an operator. I'm not a shooter. I've been with these guys for about 23 years. One of the functions that I perform as a chaplain, since I train with them every week, I spend an eight-hour shift training with them, I PT with them, whatever. Normally when they train, they just do this endless building clearing. They make hostage rescues, and, and I'm usually the bad guy. I hide in the building. I've been playing professional hide-and-go-seek for 23 years from a SWAT team. Um, and if you come through the police academy and you know how to clear a building, you've had to clear a building that I'm in. Well, one day they got this idea, what if we could incorporate our building clearing techniques with a canine unit? And what if we could use a canine not only to find a guy in a building, but if he could grab the guy and maybe drag him out? We won't have to send SWAT teams in. So they said, Lonnie, we're going to let you hide in this building, and we're going to send this land shark in after you. Now, I don't know if you've noticed how tall I am, and when you can look at a dog in the eyes, that's into... So they put me in the Michelin Man suit. And I go waddling off into this old abandoned school building, the old Farley School. They open the door, said, Huntsville SWAT, sound off. I'm not supposed to say anything. And they release the land shark. If you've never been in a building that's stone tomb quiet and heard the nails of a German shepherd clicking on those tiles and hear him breathing in the darkness... And then he hit me. He found me in 30 seconds. He hit my scent cone, drilled me, pulled me down by one arm, and drug me backwards out into the hallway where his, where his handler was. They said, that was cool. Let's do it again. <laughs> but this time they said, instead of doing it again with just the canine handler, Lonnie go in the building and we'll put the entry team on the outside and see if the dog works well with the entry team. So they go to their cars and they put on these poncho style vests with shoulder pads and elbow pads and, and knee pads and, and ninja hoods known as a balaclava and their helmets. 
Then they bring the dog around the corner, and when the dog comes around the corner, the dog acts like he's been shocked with electricity. He goes absolutely crazy. He's acting like the, the Tasmanian devil on crack. I mean, he's just jumping and lunging and slobbering, and they have to put him back in the car. And somebody said that the handler's name was Tim. I said, Tim, what's wrong with Dakota? And I said, guys, look how I'm dressed. Look how this entry team is dressed. That dog thinks everybody here is wearing a bot suit. He thinks everybody's playing. And what the men had put on for protection, the dog saw as a signal to attack. And sometimes in our churches, people do what they can to feel secure. They sit in the back or they leave early or they come late or they're standoffish or they're quiet or they're loud. And the thing that they're doing to feel secure, we see as a sign to attack. Well, how dare you not? Well, I can't believe you're. Folks, we've got to accept others. We've got to learn to view the world from their perspective. We've got to see what it is to be that new person who's not raised in the church who comes in and we use language they don't understand. The Apostle Paul, in writing to these folks, says, you learn to accept your responsibility. Number two, you learn to accept your limitations. And number three, you learn to accept others. And accepting others boils down to this. You are the body of Christ and members individually. I don't care if you're a Jew or a Gentile, a slave or a free, rich or poor, young or old, healthy or ill. You know what I know about you? You're connected to Christ. And if you're connected to Christ, you're connected to me. And our connection has nothing to do with anything physical. It has everything to do with the Christ filter. You're creating the image of God and Jesus died for you. I'm creating the image of God and Jesus died for me. That's our connection. That's our criterion for exception. That's our criterion for minister. That's our criterion for attention, belonging, and support. The only thing I have to know about you is you're a body member. And if you're a body member and I'm a body member, we're members. And we're connected. Now, you are the body of Christ and members individually. My daughter played volleyball as a high school and as a college student. She wanted a shirt. She wanted to say there is no I in team, but there is in unity. I hustle, I dig, I pass, I clean up, I cheer, I cry, I show up. All the I statements that she had to do to make that team work. There is no I in team, but there is in unity. Now Paul's going to ask a series of rhetorical questions. And when he finishes answering his rhetorical questions... He's going to give us our goal for the day. Now, you are the body of Christ, but members individually. Now, God has appointed these in the church. First apostles and second prophets and third teachers and after that miracles and then gifts of healing and helps, administrations and tongues. Are all apostles? Now, I realize these are rhetorical questions, but we're going to answer them. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? Certainly not. Are all workers of miracles? Absolutely not. Do all have gifts of healings? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. But earnestly desire the best gifts, and and I show you a more excellent way. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and do not have love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. 
And though I have the gifts of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, I can remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Paul says, I don't really care what your function is. Everybody's function is to love. And you may not have this gift, and you may not have this ability, but let me tell you something. If you have the eloquence of an angel, it doesn't matter what good of a Bible class teacher you are, if you teach and speak and it's not because you love these people, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how many triple PhDs you have and if you understand all the mysteries of the world, if you use that knowledge and you don't use that knowledge because you love these people, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how strong your faith is. If you had the faith that you could remove mountains, but if you didn't use that faith because you love these brethren, it doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter how philanthropic you are and how generous you are and what kind of mission work you do if you do it out of self-praise rather than because you love the people you're ministering to, then it just doesn't matter. Your goal, your position, my goal in the body of Christ is accept my responsibility, accept my limitations, and accept others. And if I can't get a specific definition on that, then I just need to have the attitude of love. Because love is not selfish and love is not rude and love is not boastful. And we've tied a big loop back around to where we started this morning in Bible class about understanding trust and selflessness. Two questions this morning. They're very simple. Question number one is, are you a member of this body? If you're not a baptized believer based on your faith in Jesus Christ, you're not a member of the church. You're not a Christian. You've got unfinished business with your relationship with your God. And that needs to be addressed this morning. When we stand and sing this song, Doug will be down here. If you need to respond, you come talk to your minister, not some stranger. If you're not a member of this body, we beg and plead with you that by faith, repentance, and confession, you join this body. Question number two is, if you're a member of this body, are you doing your job? Are you loving these people like you should love? Is that manifested in your home? Is that manifested in your job? Is that manifested in this congregation? By this shall all men know you're my disciples if you have love one for another. And that's how they tell whether we're authentic or not. That's how we tell whether we're real or not. That's how we tell whether we're an organism or just merely an organization. If you're not a member of the body or you're not a healthy, functioning member of the body, make that change today, publicly or privately. We can pray with you, we can study with you, we can baptize you. But in any way that you can improve your function in the body, do that this morning while we stand, while we sing.